And you can even consider Bitcoin as a type of populism, but I would just describe it as one of the, the better types of populism. Basically, it's, it's, it's people rallying behind a, a new, new network effect technology and saying that this is the solution. Hello there. How are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And before we get into the interview today, I have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Level, a company finally delivering on the promise of a Bitcoin bank. Yes, a bank on your phone where you can deposit, spend and hold Bitcoin. And you can also do this alongside a traditional dollar checking account. You can deposit your payroll into your account as a US user, and you can even spend your Bitcoin from your account via your MasterCard debit card. I have been testing it out. I've been playing with the app, and it is everything I've ever wanted from personal banking. And there's so many more updates coming. They've got some big updates coming in February, so keep an eye out for that. Now, if you do want to find out more, if you want to go and check it out, please head over to Level, which is LVL.co, or search for Level, which is LVL, in the Google or Apple app stores. Also, we have sportsbet.io, the very best place for online gaming because they're badasses and they accept Bitcoin. Now, we are well into the football season, and you know what? Things are going all right. It's been a pretty good season so far for Liverpool. Tottenham struggling as ever. We always like it that way. Now, if you are interested in football, if you do want to make a bet, and if you want to use your Bitcoin, then sportsbet.io is the place to go. But they don't just cover football. They also cover tennis, motorsports, US sports. They even cover esports. And for new customers, they always have a range of promotions available. So if you want to find out more, please head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. Next up is Compass Mining. And Compass aren't just a sponsor. I'm a customer of theirs, and I am mining Bitcoin with them. Do you know I've been mining for over three months with them now? I mined about 0.4 Bitcoin, which is pretty cool. I'm going to try and do updates on this every month. But with the price of where Bitcoin is, I'm approaching having, I think, about a third of my mining equipment paid off. I love that I'm mining again, because Compass has made it accessible to anyone as a Bitcoiner to get out there and start mining and contribute to the decentralized growth of the hash rate. It was so easy to get onboarded and anyone can do it. You just pick your machines, choose your hosting facility and Compass does everything else for you. Now, if you want to find out more, if you want to start mining, please head over to compassmining.io, which is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G dot I-O. Next up today, we have Gemini, who I am now using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin. And do you know what? We're coming up to a year and I've still not sold a single sat through Gemini. I am only buying Bitcoin. I am a hodler. That's all I'm doing. Now, I have been using the Gemini app for buying the dips, but I've also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. And I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With a streamlined trading view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing, all through one clear, attractive interface. And Gemini are running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please do head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD. That is G-E-M-I-N-I dot com forward slash WBD. Lynn, hi, how are you? Good, how are you? Good, very good. Uh, this year's rattling away from us already. We're end of, Fe- end of February. Cannot believe it. Yeah, moving pretty quickly. 
uh, crazy start to the year already. So listen, Danny uh, has been doing a lot of work in prepping for this episode. Let's let everyone know this is something Danny was, you know, Danny the producer is very keen for us to talk about a concept uh, or a topic he really wanted us to get into, which was talking about uh, wealth inequality, what's happening uh, with the economy, and are we potentially heading towards like a Great Depression too? Obviously, you're the perfect person to talk to about anything like this. So yeah, um, uh, and one of the things Danny said to me, because we were going through the notes earlier, and we we're talking about it quite a bit of detail, he didn't want us to just jump straight in and talk about uh, how inflation is leading to asset price rising, the rich getting rich. I think this has been covered over and over again by lots of different people on lots of podcasts, and I'm sure uh, we will talk about that. But he wanted to us to talk about the other things, like the variety of things that uh, may be leading us towards a greater wealth divide. Uh, and I also wanted to talk about potentially ideas on how you reduce the wealth divide. How does it actually happen historically? Is it government intervention? Is it revolutions? So there's there's a lot to get into here. Uh, do you have any opening comments before I start throwing questions at you? I think the opening comment overall is that wealth concentration is a lot more complex than a lot of people make out to me out to be. They they often propose that there's just one thing. Like if we, if we didn't have QE, then we wouldn't have wealth inequality, for example. Or well, you know, I, I prefer the term wealth concentration usually just because no one should expect wealth to be equal. It's only concerning when wealth is is say unhealthily concentrated due to kind of bad policies, right? So um you know, I, I kind of tend to phrase it as a problem of wealth concentration. And I think that the big starting point is to make that it's, it's there's so many moving parts uh, and, and some of it is unintuitive to a lot of the common narratives or sound bites that you hear uh, both inside the Bitcoin community and in the, in the broader macro community. There's so many kind of takes out there that aren't necessarily backed up by data and the actual underlying all the mechanisms are actually really complex. So do you have to do you have to divide your time? Are you swimming between Bitcoin Twitter and macro Twitter? Uh, pretty much, yeah. I mean that that's that's one of the big challenges of the past couple of years uh, is spinning up on a on a you know a whole new asset um, while also maintaining coverage of other assets. It's less hard in some ways because they tie so close together, right? I mean, uh, you know, my when, when I analyze Bitcoin, it's less from say a software perspective and more from a macro perspective. So I try to come at it with the angle that I know more so than, you know, I, I brush up on angles I don't know as well. But, you know, when I actually feel like I have something intelligent to say, it's from, you know, that macro lens. That's not entirely true because you've done a lot of technical reviews of things like the Lightning Network. So I'm going to, I'm not going to allow you just to say you only do it from a macro angle because I've read your papers, your technical analysis. I've read your work on proof of stake. So you're a liar, Lynn Alden. You have done that. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, listen, uh, you're always super humble, um, but I'm still not going to let you get away with that. So let's talk about some of these, the, the complexities on wealth concentration. Um, where do you want to start? Do you want to start with technology? We can, we can start with technology, yeah. I mean, you know, a big theme is that as you digitize things and as you have more exponential type of technology, that, you know, you can displace parts of labor. Uh, you can arbitrage labor in terms of geography. And so you can accrue the benefits to fewer people, right? So we, we, in some ways, we've, we've not fully obviously decoupled, you know, uh, kind of wealth generation from labor, um, but we have kind of diminished in some ways the role of labor in a similar way that if you go back, say, over the long run, agricultural workers used to be a very large percentage of the workforce. 
And as technology has improved that, we've been able to make it so that less than 1% of the population can feed the whole population. Um, and so we're starting to kind of sy systemically apply that to other industries as well, which is always disruptive when it happens to the people that, that work in those fields. Yeah, my friend uh, Jamie Bartlett made a documentary called The Dark Side of Silicon Valley. And following that, I, I was kind of looking at uh, some of the impacts that Silicon Valley has had on the world, this kind of massive amounts of investment and during a time of cheap credit that's come in and allowed uh, people to spin up these technology companies, but start to look at the kind of negative impacts. So something like Amazon, not only has that led to this wealth concentration, but it's also, you know, which this is more of a, you know, less of a quantitative uh, analysis, but kind of destroyed the experience of going to a bookstore, speaking to somebody in a store, asking about books, uh, that whole kind of experience. I used to take the kids on a Saturday down to a, a place called Waterstones, and we'd just have a browse through the bookstore, and we'd ask questions, and you know, it was, a, it was an experience that's now gone. But it's also, on top of that, it's kind of damaged the ability of someone to go and be able to create a competitive experience on the high street. So not only have we seen wealth concentration, I think we've actually damaged the experience. I think so. We, so there's a combination of that, the, the technological network effects, you know, basically having, say, the biggest e-commerce platform and the biggest, uh, you know, servers to kind of back that up and even support, you know, uh, host other e-commerce sites and, and, you know, spread your profit over that. And, but we also see it in non-tech fields, this consolidation. And so, for example, an ex like uh, hardware stores in the U.S. used to have, you know, tons of, uh, you know, mom and pop hardware stores. You go to your local smaller, mid-sized hardware store. And, you know, all this kind of mom and pop stores, the, the thing is, you know, the owners have substantial equity and net worth in it. And then you can have employees that maybe work there for decades because they know the family, they, you know, they're trusted employees, they have a sense of ownership in it, even though they're not maybe necessarily owners. And over time, as you've consolidated that into these, say, large hardware change, uh, chains, in some ways it enhances the experience because you can go to the store and get anything you need. There's, there's no such thing as you go to Lowe's or Home Depot and they don't really have what you need. Um, uh, they're so big. But they've corporatized it, right? So we've put all these mom and pop stores out of business. Um, employers are kind of like one of thousands of employees uh, throughout this corporation. And so you've kind of taken the face off of it and, and corporatized it. And another big challenge is that those corporations can come in and kind of negotiate with a local area and argue for tax advantages and things like that and promising that, you know, we'll bring jobs there. But often what they do is if you kind of go back and run the analysis five years later, the area didn't necessarily benefit. It was kind of like a net wash at best. And really what benefited was that company. And so the combination of technology and this kind of just increased corporatism um, has been a, a, one of the factors for wealth concentration. Well, that Amazon has been a great example of that, offering to open up warehouses, distribution centers, headquarters and places, and uh, asking for advantageous uh, tax relationships with the, the local city. Uh, everything I every time I look into Amazon, all I see is a company that kind of grosses me out, and I keep thinking. I was discussing this with Ben Ark. I don't know if you listened to that interview, but I was going to attempt to do a whole month of not using Amazon and see if it was possible. And uh, and it's something I do want to try because I I, I I don't know. I'm just I'm not a big fan of Amazon uh, at the moment. And it puts me to another point where with these tech companies, and I you know this is not something I would know about, but uh, monopoly laws. One of the things, one of the arguments against say libertarians is that you would get the rise of monopolies and. 
the state is meant to protect uh, protect us from monopolies. But it feels like within tech, we do have these monopolies and not too much has been done to kind of curb them. Well, so part of it's that there's there's kind of two different main views on monopolies. One is that part of the way they form in the first place is kind of working with government. Uh, basically, that they get that kind of tie in with the government or get the kind of the government's blessing. They they insert their cronyism. So if you look, for example, the biggest network effects, they also the companies, they also spend the most on lobbying. Right. So these big tech companies actually kind of became the biggest lobbyers over time in the United States. Um, whereas the the more um, so that that'd be kind of the libertarian view of it, that, that that'd be their pushback is they would say monopolies don't really form outside of kind of a government controlled jurisdiction right um the but the counterpoint to that would be you know we don't really have an alternative test case because the whole world always is under some sort of government jurisdiction and we do get these monopolies um and so i think that that's a pretty complex subject i mean like decades ago my mom was actually kind of an antitrust lawyer uh she would go after those but it was kind of a losing battle i mean she she was dealing with it back when like banks were in the process of consolidating before they were too big to fail and we all know where that went. They eventually all did become too big to fail. But again, they're, they're heavily tied into the Federal Reserve. They're heavily tied into, uh, you know, there's that revolving door between financial regulators and the financial companies themselves. Most of those officials worked at places like Goldman Sachs and these other kind of firms. And so it can be hard to separate a corporate monopoly from the government monopoly. It, 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 that, that's kind of one of the, I think, the overall issues is that when I talk about these big changes over time, these big cycles, cronyism ends up being a theme that that comes back basically power begets more power and it can happen on both sides of the equation like for example in the 70s you had labor cronyism right you had these very powerful labor unions and they would tie themselves heavily into politics and then the the, the you know the advantage there is that workers would get paid pretty well but the disadvantage is you, you get bogged down with inefficiency and and you know just just you can't get anything done um, whereas when you swing to the other side and, and corporations and the, you know, those with capital have the power, they get tied into the cronyist. Um, then you have this, this massive wealth concentration and this, this kind of labor arbitrage, labor suppression. Um, and and the, if you look at history, you tend to get these pendulums swing back and forth between who has the power and the, the, the challenge there, the risk there is that if you, you know, if you start to notice the problem and then change policies to kind of push the pendulum back towards some sort of, you know, social contract that more people are are fine with that's kind of the wise way to do it um, but in practice if they don't handle it well then the pendulum just slams so far that it breaks like the side of the case and then you get like a revolution or collapse or something like that and then you nobody benefits so it's that's always kind of these these challenging points in history to navigate that happen every generation or two and represent kind of these big decision points that that affect how the next several decades go in terms of which countries are you know, in charge, which, you know, how, how, you know, what, what groups benefit the most. How much has globalization led to wealth concentration? I was watching a documentary recently, I can't remember who it was, but um, there was Tony Blair was talking about uh, a policy and economic policy and uh, relationships with other governments and removing tariffs and allowing uh, the uh, manufacturer and parts of manufacturing to move abroad. But really what that that really benefited was the owners of the companies were able to move their manufacturing aboard. But it was a real negative for the local communities. Uh, we know this is an issue, for example, with car manufacturing. It just became, for a lot of companies, became too expensive in the US for them to manufacture cars. Um, how much of that has led to a different kind of wealth concentration? I would say that's been a major factor. Um, but it's not, often people think of it as like inevitable. Like it went from, say, the developed world to the developing world. 
Um, whereas actually, that's not really the case when you look at country by country. So, for example, Germany and Japan were not really hollowed out by you know uh, offshoring and 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 globalization. If anything, they benefited from it to a reasonable degree. Um, a lot of the cost was actually borne by the American middle class. Um, also, some places in the UK. Basically, there there are certain areas in the world that you know were were like net losers from that, and other areas that were net winners, like China uh, and, and parts of these other developed countries, Switzerland, Singapore. I mean, they weren't harmed by it. And so it really kind of comes down to the more specific policies. And so, for example, I, I often tie this back into the petrodollar system that we talked about before, mm-hmm. which is that the United States chose to make these deals with Saudi Arabia and OPEC to basically make it so that the whole world needs dollars if they want to import oil. That puts like an extra monetary premium on the dollar. Uh, it makes the whole world demand dollars. And the only way that we realistically get dollars out to the world is by running these structural trade deficits. It increases our import power as Americans, and it decreases our export competitiveness. And that, so everybody in America benefits from that to a certain degree, right? So so if you're rich or poor, you get cheaper goods, for example. Um, but uh, the costs are disproportionately borne by, you know, the people that lose their jobs or that have their wages suppressed. Um, because of that, that, you know, new global competition, whereas the ones that really, you know, get all the benefits and few of the downsides are those that work in tech, healthcare, government, uh, these kind of higher margin or, or that they own the, the companies themselves that, that are benefiting from that labor arbitrage. And so you, that's where you have the formation of the Rust Belt in the United States. So mm. our steel making capacity, our, our car making capacity all went down. And you don't really see that in, in say, Germany or, or, or Japan that haven't really, you know, made this kind of petrodollar kind of deal with the devil type of situation. And so I would say that it's more a U.S. phenomenon than a kind of developed world to developing world phenomenon. But there is some aspect of it everywhere. I mean, the, the, the lowest margin industries like textiles pretty much throughout the world have gone to developing countries. And of course, the thing there is that that's how emerging markets historically go up the value chain. They, you know, they, 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 start, they use the fact that they're impoverished, that they have cheap labor, and that's how they're able to start accumulating that capital. So, you know, when you think of it in a global scale, there are people benefiting, there are people harmed, but we shouldn't be surprised when we start to see populism in those regions that are harmed by it. That, so, you know, we can talk about certain aspects are maybe inevitable as the world opened up and became connected. There's going to be winners and losers from that, but there's also specific policies that accelerate it. Uh, and we shouldn't be blind to those. Yeah. So even though it may lead to a local form of wealth concentration uh, on a global scale, it leads to a, as it essentially on a global scale, reduced wealth concentration in that it's given a smaller countries, you're essentially saying a, a, a chance to kind of raise themselves up. To some extent, I mean, one, one way you can describe kind of the whole field of uh, like economics is that specialization is helpful. For the most part so for example as we learn to specialize that's how we boost our productivity now there i mean there is such a thing as over specialization where you can only do like this one task and if that task becomes obsolete you know you're not like a well-rounded economy or well-rounded community or well-rounded individual um but you know basically like bringing all these countries together and arbitraging kind of the frictions and 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 reducing them as much as possible in theory uh is good for global wealth um, I think it only becomes a problem when you don't either counterbalance that by effective policies, right? So, you, so, you know, you have policies that kind of encourage all the capital to flow up to the top and arbitrage everything and then don't address 
uh, the fact that there are going to be losers from this and then be blindsided when you have populism, right? So I think you, mm. basically there are ways to soften it with effective fiscal policy uh, that they don't really do. So I, I think you know some aspects were inevitable, but other aspects were poorly handled. Okay, and then into your wheelhouse, monetary policy. How is that? How does that contribute to wealth concentration? Obviously, we've seen a massive increase in wealth concentration during the last twelve to twenty-four months with uh, COVID policies. But can we just can you just explain that? So this is where I, I disagree with some of the common narratives. Uh, among other people, I agree with. So basically, there's the argument that QE uh, grows wealth concentration and that low interest rates grow wealth concentration. It's actually a lot of that is true, right? So, so the, the, the straightforward case there is that those things primarily boost asset prices and who owns most assets, the rich. So that boosts, boosts the net worth of the rich without really helping the poor. Now, if we were to then run the data and we say, okay, let's test that that's actually happening. If that theory is true, we should look across countries on the world and see that the countries with the with the most QE relative to their GDP and the lowest interest rates for longest should have the most wealth concentration, or at least that, that should be the general trend. Uh, and instead, we find uh, you know there's either no correlation, there's actually an inverse correlation, where the countries that did the most QE and have the lowest interest rates, like Japan, have among the lowest wealth concentration. Then you have countries like Europe that were kind of in the middle, and they're, they're usually in the middle in terms of wealth concentration. And then in the developed world, the United States did less QE as a percentage of GDP and has had higher average interest rates than Japan, Europe, and we have the most wealth concentration. So obviously there's more moving parts here than just that. So it's, you know, a lot of people are like to say it's, it's only the Fed's fault, or it's only this. And that's, that's where I bring it back and say it's actually there's so many moving parts here that's a lot more complex. And a general theme I would say is that it's more about fiscal policy differences than QE differences. So QE as its own, I think, you know, when you boost asset prices, that benefits the rich. But a lot of what QE is doing is funding fiscal deficits, right? And so you're monetizing fiscal deficits, especially if you, you know, the, if the central bank holds that debt for the long term. So then the question becomes, what are those fiscal deficits being spent on, right? So in Japan, they don't spend almost any money on their military as a percentage of their GDP. They, you know, they don't, you know, they basically they, they have among the cheapest health care per capita in the world, despite being one of the oldest populations in the world. Um, you know, they're, they're, and that's, there's a bunch of things that go into that. And so that because it's kind of domestic funding, it's kind of spent on the people, it's, you know, reasonable tax environment, that wealth doesn't kind of circulate to the top. Whereas if you say, take all those deficits, spend it on the military industrial complex, uh, get, you know, give basically Amazon all the, all the tax cuts you want to give them. Uh, you keep kind of labor payroll taxes pretty high. You're gonna you're gonna uh, channel that uh, wealth towards the top, and so that's why I describe it more as being a fiscal phenomenon, fiscal differences than QE alone. Is is the U- U.S. unique in this situation as well with these concentrations of wealth because it has been so successful on the technology front? And we talked about technology companies being able to uh, drive concentration concentrations of wealth. You, know, you look at Tesla, Amazon. I mean, the majority of some of the biggest companies are tech companies are in the US, but these are also global companies. Facebook's another. Whereas outside of those, how many are there? I mean, Spotify, Alibaba. There's there's not many huge global technology brands outside of the US. Is that one of the the reasons the US has is it is different? I think that's a factor for why you have 
you know, the, the really long end of the curve, like the really, yeah. you know, the, the people that are worth over a hundred billion or over 50 billion, that's certainly a big factor that, that the United States is home to these gigantic network effects more so than, than other countries. Um, but, it, you know, when we look at, when we kind of think broadly about what is technology, different eras have different things that are technology. So there was, a, you mm. know, there's a certain period where railroads were technology and they became the, you know, the billionaires of their day, right? And, and same thing with, with, you know, getting oil out of the ground and transporting effectively was technology. And so, for example, if you go back a few decades, you know, uh, Japan was the heart of technology. Japan was, you know, they were exporting all these high quality goods to the world. That, that industrial tech was the leading edge technology and they didn't have extreme wealth concentration, right? So it's, it's that combination of being in the forefront of technology can boost wealth concentration. But then the question is, is fiscal policy magnifying it or is it, is it balancing it? Or is fiscal policy not really involved? Uh, and so I think that's, that's kind of the way to look at it. Okay. So these concentrations of wealth, um, in terms of theory about the impact on this, we've, we've seen this big rise of tax the rich, uh, AOC, and uh, this, these kind of campaigns against the, the billionaires, the billionaires should pay more tax, or we shouldn't have billionaires. Uh, some people staunchly defending them, saying, no, these people create the most jobs, they create opportunity, it's not a zero-sum game, etc. But is there any kind of like theory behind that these concentrations of wealth damage people or damage society? It, would it be better if some of this wealth was freed up and distributed? Is there any kind of thoughts behind that? Well, historically, in, in multiple societies, and this, this really goes back thousands of years, even to studying like ancient Greece, for example. But if you look around the world, when you get extreme levels of wealth concentration, uh, that's when you generally get more prone to populism and in extreme cases, revolution. Um, and so it is something that we should be aware of and concerned by. But of course, that's where I think people are going to differ and, and determine, OK, what, why did we get here and what are the policies to maybe reduce this severity and avoid some of the worst outcomes? And so I think I think the problem is with a lot of those kind of tribalistic views of it, they look at kind of the symptoms rather than debating kind of the root causes or getting to the root causes. So if someone's rich, it's less so they say, OK, we're going to go ahead and take 80 percent of their wealth and disperse it. It's more like what what are we what are the systems we have in place that make for such extreme wealth concentration, not just for successful individuals that they say do really good companies, but why do we have such kind of, say, wage suppression among workers? Why do we have, you know, this, this sense of social contract breaking down on unfairness? What are kind of the root issues? What way is fiscal policy magnifying this already? And I think, you know, there, um, uh, that billionaire investor, Jeff Gunlock, I think phrased it well. So he was pointing out, like, he's, you know, he's based in California. Um, if you add up all of his, all of his tax, uh, you know, rates, he pays over 50% of his income in tax. And when he's talking about, for example, AOC was at like that 70% tax proposal on the federal level, which if you're then in California would, would boost you to over 80%. He's like, I would just, I would just stop working at that point. And so he phrased it as, you know, instead of getting someone who's paying over 50% of their tax rate up to 80%, he's like, well, when they're, when they're say other wealthy people like Mitt Romney, that are then reported to pay like say 12% income tax, which is like less than the, you know, typical worker, he's like, maybe go after those. Uh, sort of inefficiencies more so than than basically doing these super high penalizing tax rates, and that that's kind of how I view it too. In the sense that I, you know, there's not a really good track record of super high tax rates, you know, being the answer to those things. But I think having a a, a fair tax structure makes sense. So, for example, no, you know, 
if a wealthy person pays a lower tax rate than their secretary, that's not an, that's probably not an ideal fiscal uh, policy choice. Um, and if you if the wealthy are kind of getting most of the benefits from fiscal spending, right? So if a lot of that fiscal spending, like say the military goes into the, mil- the industrial complex, gets those people super rich, if the Federal Reserve does a lot of its policy through BlackRock and then BlackRock executives get rich, you know, a lot of that spending is benefiting the rich. So then the question is, if you have that spending benefiting the rich, and then you also have these kind of tax arbitrages from decades of lobbying, that's how you kind of concentrate wealth into the top. An example was the PPP program. So in the United States, we did that program back during the pandemic where, you know, we gave loans to small companies that if they, you know, they have to meet certain things, they can't fire their employees and they do all this. And then eventually those loans are forgiven. And they went back and did analysis on it. You know, the vast majority of those companies would not have reduced their employees anyway. Um, and so basically what happened was that that money just went straight to the top line of the company, the people that owned those businesses. So we basically, most of that went to people that were already fairly wealthy. And so, for example, if you instead did, say, the same amount of fiscal spending and just kind of even increased stimulus checks, or let's say you cut payroll taxes, right? You say you make it, you make it more enticing to, to stay in the labor force and have a job, um, those types of things trickle to the actual workers more so than, than how we structure the PPP loans, for example. So it, it comes down mm-hmm. to both the spending side and the taxing side. And we kind of have these decades of accumulation of mainly kind of, oops, this, this policy favored the rich. Oops, this one did too. Oops, this, t- this tax cut was 80% to the rich. Like it just kind of keeps piling on. And part of that's not an accident because we have that, that lobbying cronious kind of cycle that, that's built up over decades. Yeah, could we just re- reduce the size of the state and reduce the tax rates for everybody? That's certainly, that's one of the political views, right? So there's obviously, there's, there's people of different political stripes have different approaches. So someone with a, a larger government focus would say we need to, uh, you know, uh, say tax differently and then spend more on the poor. Um, whereas other people would say, okay, we need to have less government, less of that kind of recycling to the top. And I think that there, you know, we, we see from countries around the world, ranging from Norway to Singapore, there are very different ways to, to kind of have a, a fairly functional society uh, with very different tax rates, very different spending policies. But a, a key trend is it has to be intelligent. It can't be corrupt, right? So I think yeah. that corruption and cronyism is kind of the main thing. There are multiple right and wrong answers for how to, how to run an economy, right? Or run, a, run, you know, run that government overlay onto the economy. There, there's multiple right and wrong answers, but, but there are kind of objectively worse ways to do it that just feed populism, feed wealth concentration, and make things worse. Have you thought of becoming the Fed chair? No. <laughs> we might need you, Lynn. I, I've, I've been asked, well, one is, I mean, they, they, you know, they pick people that are you know, qualified you know, from their works, like in investment banking and things like that, to work in that role. But well, you two, know why. Well, yeah, because it's the revolving door. Mm. But even then, I mean, I, you know, people jokingly ask, like, what would you do if, the, if, if you were the Fed chair? And I would say resign because, you know, <laughs> that's where I go back to the long term debt cycle thing where, you know, I, I would say that the Fed made huge mistakes over decades, especially under Greenspan, where they held rates super low when they didn't need to encourage these these debt bubbles to build. And now the debt's so big that if you then raise rates, it kind of collapses everything. Um, and if you if you you know, you don't do that, then you just kind of, you know, let inflation run hot and kind of burn away devalue currency. And so, 
I'm always I'm often confused why Jerome Powell, for example, even wants the job. He's super rich. Like he could use I don't know. Like I, I just I would not want that job at all. Maybe he just loves the the risk, loves the I don't know. I don't I wouldn't want that job. I mean, I'm Yeah, he's got like anyway. millions of people making memes about him. I I don't want that job. I'd be phoning you every day and say, Lim, what the fuck do I do here? <laughs> <laughs> so that you talk about this populism side of things. Um uh and what we're really talking about here is political opportunism in that people like to be able to gain votes by saying those people over there are the reason you haven't got what you've got. And do you think do you think any of this growing wealth divide is part of the problem that we have today with so much, I don't know, political upheaval, the the left v the right? Do you th- do you think that plays into any of that? Well, I think it's all feeds on itself, right? So right. as and, and this goes back to the whole pendulum thing. You can describe it as kind of economic entropy or government entropy, where, you know, a generation builds up these institutions, these frameworks, these agreements, and then over time, and those work at first, and you kind of have this big period of, of kind of, you know, social cohesion. You've covered that with, with Brandon about the fourth turning mm. in, uh, on your podcast before. You, you go through these, these, these generational cycles, and eventually those start decaying over time. They're, they become outdated. They become corrupt. Um, people stop trusting them. Uh, you get inefficiencies building up in the system. Either, let's say, you know, labor gets more and more entrenched, right? Or you have the opposite where like capital gets more and more entrenched uh, and, and it kind of power begets more power. Uh, and then eventually you, you run into that kind of uh, 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 shift in the other direction. And when you have a situation where capital gets most of the power, the natural result is you get you get more rising populism. I mean, in the in the in the simplest sense, populism is politics that that focus on the everyday person. And there are you know I think that obviously there are more benign forms of populism, and then there there are more dangerous forms of populism. Uh, and it's almost like the longer those initial populist uh, kind of outcries are ignored, the more they grow and they be, and become the the more dangerous type. And you can have populism on the right, you can have populism on the left, right? So in, in the United States, you know, Tea Party was a type of right-leaning populism. Uh, Occupy Wall Street was left-leaning. And then over, over the decade, you've, you've, you've transformed that, right? So, so the right-leaning populism kind of went towards Trumpism, and the left-leaning populism kind of went towards wokeism. And, and so we, we've kind of diverged into these uh, 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 subsets of populism that at least you know, that there are subsets of both sides that are, that are, that are kind of dangerous. They kind of, they, they feed in their own echo chambers. They get very tribalist mentalities. And we see this in multiple countries around the world too. And you see it less in countries like Japan, where they have less wealth concentration to start with. But when you have, for whatever reason, a country has a lot of uh, upheaval, that's where you get that more rising populism. And you can even consider Bitcoin as a type of populism, but I would just describe it as one of the, the better types of populism. Basically, it's, it's, it's people rallying behind a, a new, new network effect technology and saying that this is the solution. And so that's, I mean, that's, that's obviously the populism I would prefer more so than some of these kind of uh, other types of populism, right? So I think that mm. I don't view populism in itself as a bad thing. I, I just view it as something that it starts, you know, you have to, when it starts to develop, politicians have to pay attention to it. And if they don't, then you start to get these more dangerous rides. Before we carry on with the interview, I do have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Ledger. 
the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now, a hardware wallet allows you as a Bitcoiner to take custody of your Bitcoin. And I have been a Ledger customer since early 2017. It's over four years now, and I'm still using that same Nano S I bought back then. Ledger makes it easy for you to safely manage your Bitcoin using their Ledger Live software, which interfaces with your device. And you can even connect your Nano S to your Android phone to manage your Bitcoin on the go. If you want to find out more, please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Next up is BlockFi. Now you can get up to $250 in Bitcoin when you join BlockFi. They've launched their BlockFi Rewards Visa Signature Card. And for people in the US who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, then the BlockFi Rewards Credit Card provides the easiest way for you to earn more Bitcoin because you get 1.5% back in Bitcoin on every purchase with no annual fee. It is the smartest way to stack sats with Bitcoin rewards and every purchase. But if you're interested in finding out more and you do want to take out that bonus, you want to get the $250 in Bitcoin, then please head over to BlockFi.com forward slash Peter, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com forward slash Peter. Next up, it's Casa, the safest way to store your Bitcoin. Now, forgotten passwords, SIM swaps, phishing attacks, there are just too many ways to have your Bitcoin lost or stolen. But with Casa, you never have to worry about your Bitcoin again. Because with a Casa multi-sig wallet, you get to take custody of your Bitcoin, but you only move Bitcoin by signing transactions from multiple wallets, ones which you get to distribute into different locations. And this is going to protect you from a range of mistakes, errors, and vulnerabilities. Now, if you want to find out more about this, I have been a customer for over a year. You can hit me up in my DMs or drop me an email. Happy to answer your questions. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Next up, we have my new sponsor to the show, which is BCB Group, who provide online business banking for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, I am now a customer of BCB2. They heard about my difficulty with finding a bank, a reliable one that understands Bitcoin, and they reached out to me. So I've moved all my business banking across to BCB, and you know what? I could not be happier. It is so nice to finally be dealing with a bank which understands my business and understands Bitcoin and isn't putting hurdles in my way. BCB's clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe, but they are now expanding globally. And they also have this amazing fiat network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now listen, I know some of you have had some trouble with this. If you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you want to become a BCB customer. If you want to find out, then please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Yeah, there, there is another side to this as well. Um, and it's something I have to consider of being a parent with two children. I've got a son going off to university about to incur a, a potential amount of debt over the, the next three years if he doesn't hit a certain grade because I'm only paying his fees if he if he works. Uh, the the uh, job market will enter in in three years. The the fact that he'll want to buy a house. Um, life is... The, the, these concentrations of wealth have, have made certain things just become a lot more expensive. It's a, yeah, it's a lot harder for people to get on the housing ladder these days. That's, that's kind of like... Uh, I think that's uh, universally accepted. Um, and so that means I don't know how long my children will li- live with me. But also this kind of like... 
in in my father's day, now my my father never earned a lot of money, but he, they always knew they could buy a house and they could own a house, they could have a car. They knew they could get the basics within life and have a pension. It feels like these things are getting further and further away from people, which is kind of, I mean, I was just talking about with Junseth recently, where he was talking about this kind of like nihilistic behavior where people are just gambling. They're just gambling, you know, whether it's crypto, stocks, Robin Hood, etc. Is this another symptom for you of this kind of growing concentrations of wealth? Absolutely. And part of it, that, that goes back to Bitcoin and money is that because we've had decades of bad money, weak money, right? So, so zero near or near zero interest rates, uh, uh, and especially negative real interest rates, um, people have had to monetize other things. So they monetize stocks, they monetize um, real estate, they monetize all these other types of assets. And those, especially for real estate, which is among the most functional of assets, um, it puts them out of the reach of people. So if you look at, say, home values to income ratios, uh, and this is this is not just America, this is around the world, uh, it put that more out of the reach of people. My my father, um, who he, he was pretty old when I was born, he was old enough to, he could have been my grandfather. Um, and when he was like in his 20s, he was a police officer and he just bought a house. Like it just wasn't, a, it wasn't a huge deal to buy a house. Um, whereas, you know, Decades later, someone who like, and he didn't have to, he didn't have to get student debt to do that. You know, he just kind of went in and worked and was able to buy a house. And now we've kind of made it so that, you know, you need, you need a degree often to have kind of a similar income that someone had decades ago without a degree. Uh, and yet you also have student loans and things are more expensive. And so that's kind of part of why uh, people have kind of sensed that things are becoming more and more stacked against them, where... You know, if th- there's that chart I, I've used in a couple articles. If you look at median male income in the U.S. over time, uh, it, it goes up. But then you see things like housing costs, transportation costs, healthcare costs, and college costs uh, kept expanding until they, you know, they kind of eclipsed that that median income. So you made it so that you kind of need two incomes, or you need to be an above average income in order to support what was once supportable uh, with a with a, a median male income. Uh, uh, you know, salary. Uh, is this that, so just, uh, oh, oh. Is, sorry, is this that uh, where people talk about the squeezing of the middle class? Because yeah, somebody growing up, when I used to hear this term, squeezing the middle class, I used to think, well, sh- why should we worry about the middle class being squeezed? You know, we should really be worrying about the working class. But actually, that's like, it has a strong signal and a detrimental effect on society. Well, yeah, and it's also, I mean, working class and middle class are two very large segments and they're, they're both really important. And And when you look at the median, you're, you're kind of capturing good chunks of, you know, because that's, that's the middle number, right? So there's a bell curve around it, and you're kind of capturing working and middle class people overall when you're looking at the median. It, it kind of gives you signal for a, a broader stretch. So even though that's officially middle class, um, you know, it's, 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 that, that kind of reflects what's happening to the working class even more, um, and it's happening to the middle class. And so it's kind of what we're watching is a social contract over time, break down. People had certain expectations of the government, uh, of each other, of corporations. Kind of this, we we had this understanding of what it, what it means to live in this country, and then over decades that changes. And the people either mm-hmm. you know, maybe they're less attached to their country, less attached to their government, less attached to these institutions because they feel that over time those were corrupted, or over time that they unilaterally changed the contract. They said, okay, we're gonna close our, our auto plants in here and open auto plants in, in Mexico. And then people say, well, if, I mean, if they're not holding their end of this kind of social contract, 
then they're going to, yeah, they're going to tend towards nihilism or, or meme trading or things like that. That's where you get kind of the, you know, if, if one side arbitrages, the other side is going to try to arbitrage. They might have less power to do so, obviously. Um, and so it's, it's one of those things where some of it is inevitable. Some of it's technology and we just have to adapt with it. Um, but other as other, other details are when politicians become corrupt and then they kind of exacerbate that change rather than kind of either push back on it or, or just kind of let it play out. I just downloaded today, John Jack Rousseau's the social contract. So I'm, uh, I'm going to be diving down that, uh, rabbit hole, probably something I'll talk to you about actually coming up. Okay. So. The kind of last year I want to go into with you, because this is the most concerning, is that uh, Danny was starting to look at the similarities between what's happening now and what happened in the 1920s. Uh, he noticed that there was like back in the 1920s, there was also this pre- profound shift in wealth with the rich getting richer, etc. And there are a number of causes for that. Uh, I'm guessing you've seen kind of like a, a similar pattern. Yeah, absolutely. If you look at, so I've used kind of the 40s as my template for where we are in the 2020s but if you look at the if you look at the 2000s and the 2010s that's they means those were the 1920s and 1930s you kind of have this big parallel and you can talk you can frame that in multiple ways i like to frame it through the long-term debt cycle right so that's the last time that that monetary and fiscal policy look like it does now Um, but it also looks very similar in terms of wealth concentration that's the last time you had wealth that's concentrated in the u.s uh and in some other countries um, and yeah, you get prone to um, uh, extremes, right? So, so you have kind of a spectrum of outcomes. On one hand, you can have like what happened with Russia, where you overthrow, you know, the wealthy and then make it worse, right? You just kind of have that kind of revolution. Um, you also, in another dark way, you have like the Nazis, right? You had the rise of that was a that was one of the most dangerous forms of populism at the time. Um, or in the United States, we, you know. Because of our experience with World War One, we, we then did World War II a little differently in the sense that when, when say, veterans came back from World War One, we kind of just gave them a bus ticket and said, thanks for your service. Um, and then that kind of, that, that led into some of the things that the, the wealth concentration that happened throughout the 20s and eventually, you know, kind of the breaking of the social contract. Whereas when we had veterans come back after World War II, we were like, okay, I mean, this is not where we're going to stop spending money now. So we're gonna at least going to make sure that, that these veterans have resources to get integrated back into society, that we, that we thank them for their service. Um, and so we, we handle, obviously, there's you know, different political opinions about um, the political leaders at the time, but we did kind of recognize that there was growing sympathy with communism in the country, right? There, there was, you know, we were kind of in that, that, that kind of war of ideas with the Soviet Union, uh, with, with you know, you're kind of the more, those, those more dangerous aspects. And we said, okay, we, we can't, we obviously we don't, we don't want to go down that route, but we can't ignore some of these uh, uh, rising populist tendencies and these people noticing that the social contract's breaking down. So it's okay, how can we tweak policy to kind of address that? And right or wrong, they kind of threaded the needle enough that the United States kind of uh, partly because of the war outcome, but also just because we kept our kind of institutions relatively intact, we went on to have a, another several decades of prosperity. So kind of is, is identifying the problems and then not ignoring them, right? But there's, there's obviously different views on, on the best ways to solve those. So, so it's coming out of COVID, similar to coming back from World War II, in that there's a kind of like this recognition that people need to be looked after. That a, would you say that's a similar scenario? Is, is well, COVID it, like it, a world war? 
in many ways, I mean, like, uh, you know, Biden even referred to it as wartime, you know, finance. And I, I agree with that. I, I think I wrote that even before he, he said that, which was that, you know, when I compare the 2020s to the 1940s, it's not that we're necessarily having a kinetic war, hopefully, um, at least, you know, between major powers. Um, but instead, it's it's that the that because there's so much debt in the system that when it gets a shock to the system like the pandemic, you know, you're going to see these huge fiscal expenditures and you're going to see this big monetization of debt, devaluation of currency. And that's something that was the set. The stage for that was kind of set over decades and it kind of comes out all at once because of all a right. catalyst. But it's like there are a bunch of analysts that were expecting that type of thing, uh, you know, anyway. And it just that it got so condensed in a short period of time. And so I do I do think that looking at that through the war lens is one way to, you know, from a macro analyst standpoint, looking for inflation, looking for money supply growth, looking for why things are happening the way they are. I do view that war financing lens as as one of the main tools to view it through. And we have a similar kind of permeable attitude in that i don't know how long the stock market bull market's been going on i know we had the covid dip but essentially speaking for quite some period of time the the s&p just is what is it, is it a decade long is it ever since 2008 it's been in pretty much permanent growth um there was a similar back in the 20s it was kind of like that permeable attitude 10 year of growth before the great depression hit uh by also saying that i I've, have you read the thread preston pish put out this uh last day i think it's might have been I don't believe I have yet, no. But um, he's starting to talk about the unwinding of this, which is why we brought up this kind of idea. Is there a potential Great Depression to come in and, and can we can we avoid it? Look, where are you at with that? So I, I view it somewhat differently. I don't I don't know uh, Preston's specific thread, um, but, but for people that are kind of calling for a Great Depression too, I view it somewhat differently uh, in that by many ways of looking at it, We've been in a mild depression for over a decade now, in the sense okay. that if you look at, say, the 2010s, they actually line up a lot to the 1930s. Now, it's, with that, it's, it's basically going through a similar experience, but with way better technology, right? So in the 1930s, you had the Dust Bowl, you know, you had, you had war-torn areas, right? So it's kind of like going through a similar monetary and fiscal environment without that. Um, and so when you look at the rise in, say, opioid deaths, the rise in kind of, you know, these, these homeless camps, right? You, you have areas look like Hooverville. Um, so we actually do have the, this kind of decade-long period of a, of a mild depression, meaning like below-trend economic growth and severe dysfunction. Um, and so I, I view us as being in less of that deflationary phase, which I think we already went through. And now I view us as being more in that inflationary wartime financing type of phase. Okay. Um, and so my, when I think about depression going forward, it's more of the, the risk, I think, is more on the inflationary side or that more stagflationary type of depression where I think the key risk is not having enough energy, essentially, right? So I, th I think that's, I look at it through the lens of energy more so than the other things because, you know, going back to the, say, say you bring up MMT, for example, you steal man MMT, MMT for a second. They say, we can print any amount of money we want as long as we have real resources, and I disagree with a lot of the MMT people, but that's the, that's the part that they're not really wrong on, is that it, it ultimately comes down to what are our real resources, right? Mm -hmm. And so we saw that over the past couple of years, we have, we have real limitations in our supply chain, right? We have, that's a large infrastructure investment. There's, you know, ports and ships and manufacturing facilities 
and all these different things are specialized and they, they have a, a, a large capital base and they take years to change and build on. Uh, but then we also have finite amounts of commodities and energy at any given time. And those projects take billions of dollars and, and many years to develop if you want more of them. Uh, and then I think when you combine that with, with, say, mismanagement of energy policy, I would say the biggest risk to a depression type scenario going forward would be if, if humanity is unable to continue growing its energy usage uh, in a way that's kind of in line with you know, allowing per capita GDP growth around the world to continue. Uh, I think that, that's probably the big risk. And so I view it as less of a deflationary type of depression like you see in the 1930s. I think we kind of went through a version of that already. And now we're more in that stagflationary type of risk where we just kind of run out of the resources we need to continue to boost human flourishing around the world. And especially uh, a problem right now considering uh, Russia's incursion into Ukraine, the the Nordstrom pipeline, her uh, certificate has been removed by Germany. I'm fully expecting some form of energy wars between Russia and the rest of Europe. Um, it's, it's, a, it's really interesting how energy could now become yeah, you know, we talk about military wars, or we talk about cyber warfare, or but we could have energy wars, really. We had that back in the seventies over, 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 over. Okay. Yeah, the, well, the politics in the Middle East. So, okay. So, one of the ways that OPEC punished the United States for supporting Israel was to uh, basically cut off its oil supply. That's part of why you had the inflation of the seventies, um, is because of of certain geopolitical realities. Um, and so, it's not. This wouldn't be the first time that regions with energy production use that energy production in order to assert their political will, either right. successfully or unsuccessfully. Um, and so ultimately, you know, if I, were, if, if I were any sort of like, say, policy position in a country, one of my biggest kind of uh, concerns would be, how do we make sure that our country gets a, a reliable supply of energy, uh, ideally diverse energy, so not just relying on one thing? How, how you know, do we have, you know, are, you, can, you can look at the renewables to some extent and you say, okay, are we harnessing our sun and wind well, right? Uh -huh. Are we doing what we can domestically there? Are we, do we have, you know, nuclear power? Uh, and, then, and then how are we getting gas and oil and things like that, right? So you can, you can, you can look across the full spectrum of resources you have available to you. And I, I think that countries that are not doing that are in a very dangerous situation. Right. Okay. Interesting. Um, did you listen to my show with Troy Cross? I don't think so. No, I recommend that. He he's he's got this unique uh, theory of uh, how we can use Bitcoin mining to massively increase investment in green energy and uh, Bitcoin mining by making uh, Bitcoin mining an ESG tool, whereby those who have ESG budgets can invest it into green mining. Uh, it's worth having to listen to because that might help solve uh, one of our energy problems. Um, I just want to, I've got up this Preston Pish uh, thread, but I wanted to refer to one part of it specifically uh, and kind of get your views on it because he talks about UBI, but he said, by year's end, I expect UBI to be a uh, politically popular by all parties in the world. Make no mistake, uh, use of QE and UBI are tools for failing currencies. I'm not promoting their use, but instead providing a projection for what I think is likely. Once UBI becomes the preferred tool for fiscal monetary policy, yes, they are merging into one, you'll also quickly realize that it must be accompanied by more QE. 
The reason why? Because UBI will cause extreme price dislocation and abnormalities. So one of the things that I was thinking about in reference to us talking about wealth concentration is that some of the solutions that have been given to the you know, advancements in technology is UBI. But I listened to the interview, I think it was with Andrew Yang and um, uh, Joe Rogan, is maybe a year or two ago. And Andrew Yang talked about this kind of like $12,000 uh, universal basic income. But at the same time, that might be somebody who, who was a trucker who was on $70,000 a year. And that, it felt like to me, it's like UBI is one of these tools which will be used because of this kind of like uh, hollowing out of jobs in you know, manufacturing and, and service industries that will be replaced by automation. But that also, that the UBI does not solve the wealth concentration. If anything, it makes it worse. Well, it's, it's one of those things where I think it depends on where in history you are. If we imagine a sufficiently technical future where, say, 80% of the population just, just can't find a job, that's a very different discussion than what we have, say, right now, right? So I think, you know, I, I think when you look far enough in the future, those types of things, you know, I don't think someone's crazy for bringing those up and say, how are we going to manage this if we get to that future? Um, and I know Andrew Yang likes to use the, he, he uses the example of Alaska, Right, because he likes to he likes to point out that it's not purely a left leaning thing, right? So Alaska is a generally Republican state, um, and they had like an oil dividend to their people. Basically, that the the people of Alaska in some way benefited from the fact that Alaska has oil, rather than just a couple co companies coming out and then benefiting from it. Norway did a similar thing where they had these gigantic oil reserves, right? And instead of just having a company come in and just kind of get all the benefits, they said, no, this is the people of Norway's resources. And so they, 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 that's how they started their whole trillion dollar sovereign wealth fund. It started with oil mm. profits and they took those profits, they invested it. So now people in Norway have the equivalent of a gigantic pension. Uh, so they haven't gone the, the full UBI route, but basically they have a pension that represents the fact that, the, you know, they were lucky enough to be born in Norway, essentially, and that they had, you know, the uh, very high kind of per capita allocation of, of natural resources. And instead of just all of that going to like, you know, the the you know kind of the oil barons it went to essentially the people at least on the behalf through the government as a proxy and again that's one of those things people can debate how that should go um so you can argue that when you have the natural resources or technological resources that it's kind of the, say the government's job to share those resources to maintain the social contract but the the risk is that if you if you do those in such a way that it destroys incentives or it damages incentives to work and to feel like you're part of the community, um, it it can make it worse. So I think it's it's if you bring out those types of solutions too quickly, you make people too dependent on the government, you break down incentive structures. That's where you have a lot of danger, and that's also why I view it as as less likely being in more of an inflationary, stagflationary type of situation where we already see that when you get high energy prices. Some of these countries, they give people money to buy energy. Um, so normally, if you have a normal economy without too much debt and you can actually go through a recession without widespread insolvency, what happens when oil prices get too high is it generally causes a recession. People consume less of it, and that helps equalize the market. Um, but if you have such a levered credit system that you can't have recession really because you start to implode the situate the, the 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 debt situation right so this whole kind of multi-decade credit growth all of this the whole fiat currency system is kind of like a, a shark that swims through water a shark can't stop swimming otherwise it drowns ironically 
it, it just has to keep swimming. It has to keep getting uh, uh, water through the gills in order to keep that going. And the fiat currency system is kind of like that, where this, this constant credit growth can't stop. It has to keep growing. And so when you get this indebted, this part of the long-term debt cycle, if you run into a recession, it starts to get more existential. It starts to get more kind of depression-like or, or just massive insolvency-like. And so when you have energy prices spike, instead of saying, okay, we have to consume less now, they say, okay, well, here's your energy stimulus. And that's part of, you know, because they damaged the, contra the social contract so much before, now they're kind of on the hook for that, right? So for example, yeah. if you go through the subprime mortgage crisis and you bail out the bankers, but not the homeowners, uh, and then you have another crisis later, people are like, no, we're not doing this again. Like, where's our bailout, right? And it's understandable yeah. that they want that because they're like, well, we already had socialism for the rich. Why not have socialism for the poor too? And well, this is... Uh this has happened in Scotland. I was just bringing up an article because I was reading about this the other day. So Scotland will benefit from an additional 250, sorry, 290 million of funding to help ease the burden of rising energy bills, the Chancellor said. Uh, uh, the money is a result of Barnet consequentials from a council tax cut announced by Richie Sunach. It will be on top of a £200 reduction on energy bills for customers in England, Scotland and Wales. And, and that's, that's my pushback for yeah. when people say, high energy prices are going to cause a recession. I'm like, well, maybe, yes, in some markets around the margins, but it, you have to take into account the fiscal situation, the debt situation, because many governments will do these types of payments to keep keep energy demand high despite prices. Um, and so then you it, it, it relieves itself in terms of currency devaluation uh, and shortages more so than a, a disinflationary type of a recession. So that's why in this type of extreme macro environment, any sort of analysis about business cycles has to has to include what is the, what is the government response going to be? What is the political mm. response going to be? Because that's kind of the environment we're in now. So, what is a uh, what has ever closed the wealth gap? Is it is it just revolutions? Is it currency devaluations? Um, yeah, historically, uh, I, I mean, I'm trying to imagine the scenarios. I, I, I've only lived in a time where the rich have got richer, so I I don't know. But is there is there like anything in history we can look to? Historically, there are a couple ways to do it. Some are uglier than others, right? So, um, right. you know, from that book, Lessons of History, it's like sometimes you have either distributing some of the wealth from the from the rich to the poor, or you have revolutions where you, you distribute poverty to everyone, essentially. Um, uh, and so there's different, you know, you can, you, can, you can decrease wealth concentration by just destroying wealth. That's one way to do it. That's, no one really benefits from that. Um, or... You can have more effective policies over time. If you look at the United States uh, from, say, the you know the 30s into the 70s, where you had a big decrease in wealth concentration, essentially what they did was they taxed really high, high really really high tax rates for the upper income percentages. Um, they had a big currency devaluation, and most of those bonds were held by the wealthy. Um, they spent a lot on GI bills and things like that. Um, and they had strong economic growth. Uh, now that's kind of hard to repeat now, right? We're in a much different situation. So I don't think it's going to play out that smoothly. Um, and when it comes to currency devaluation, that's an, it's, it's, I've talked about this before in, um, yeah. in some of my writings, it's a more complex thing. So a lot of people say that if you have a currency devaluation, the most people that are hurt are the poor because they're the ones that primarily hold cash. Whereas what happens is if we break it down by income deciles and we say, okay, let's look at the bottom 50%, let's look at the 50 to 90%, let's, let's look at the 90 to 99% and the top 1%. Let's break into those four groups. 
If you look at asset to debt ratios, the top 1% have a ton of assets and little debt relative to those assets. As you go down the income spectrum, they have more debt relative to assets. And debt is partially what gets liquidated when you have a currency devaluation. Especially the middle class that own, say, a home, they have a fixed mortgage on it. So when you had, say, the inflationary 70s, generally the middle class did pretty well by the end of it. It was the working class that was hurt. It was the wealthy that were hurt. Kind of, you know, because they were holding the stocks that did poorly. They were holding the bonds that did poorly. It was actually kind of that middle class homeowner class that did pretty well in that environment. Um, and so when you have a, a currency devaluation, it's not so much that it impacts specifically the rich or the poor. It depends who, right? So for example, among the rich are wealthy, older bondholders, pension holders, fixed income receivers. Those people get hurt by that environment, right? So that, that's a, a very problematic environment. If you have a homeowner, they do generally pretty well. Uh, so, so especially the middle class has most of their net worth tied up in their, in their home with a, with a lot of debt attached to it. Um, but then, yes, you also have areas of the, of the, of the lower classes that get really hurt by it. And if you have an outright hyperinflation, right, like you had in Weimar, you had in Zimbabwe, you have in the, in Venezuela, then it hurts almost everybody, especially the poor, right? So it's yep. kind of like degrees. It's like, it's like one of those things with like, say wine, a little bit of wine is, is fine. A lot of wine is bad. And so when you have a controlled currency devaluation, that, that's why policymakers try this. People wonder, why do policymakers try these things if they don't work? And the answer is because in small amounts, they do work, and then they, but they're really easy to mess up, and then they implode, right? So when you have this much debt in the system, you know, I prefer a harder money system, right? So I, that, that's my view. But if you have this fiat currency system, and you, and you kind of do these policies that build up all this debt, mathematically, one of the only ways out is currency devaluation. And so if they do a mild one, if they somehow stick the landing, which is actually really rare, they did it in their, in their you know, America uh, from that kind of that, that 30s to the, the 50s, to, well, really to the 70s period. Um, but outside of that, it's pretty rare to do it well. Um, so that's, that's, I think, why they try to do this approach is because they assume that they're going to be the ones to stick the landing, even though the vast majority of the time they mess it up and everybody gets hurt. The poor gets hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of the rich get hurt. Some of the rich escape it. Uh, a lot of the middle class gets hurt. And so, yeah, historically, you generally go through these really rough times when you decrease wealth concentration. And then in the aftermath, depending on how you structure policy, you can build your way out of it. And I think that's, right. that's the key to focus on is, is what long-term policies are going to maintain a healthy social contract and not have this, this cycle that just pushes you know, all this kind of fiat printing all the way up to the top of the income stack. Okay, I've got a big final question for you then, Lynn. Can, uh, can Bitcoin or will Bitcoin reduce the wealth divide? I think it's one of the tools that has a chance to, right? So okay. I, I think that, and that's where we go back to, you know, true hyperinflations or, or truly impoverished areas. Um, you know, having access to liquid hard assets is really useful. Anyone paying attention to what happens in Venezuela, Turkey, Lebanon, you know, any of these countries, Eastern Ukraine, or people are trying to flee out of that area, right? Having self-custodied hard money is really useful. And I think that's one of the things that, that people in the West missed or don't care about is they think like, why do we need crypto? Why do we need Bitcoin? And it's like, well, you've, you spent decades in a rather safe bubble that the majority of the world doesn't have access to. Most people, a lot of them don't even have access to good stock markets. A lot of them don't have, you know, a lot of people can't afford a home. And so they need something hard to save in this liquid. Um, and, and, you know, it's volatile. 
one of the long-term potentials is that Bitcoin can be that thing. It can allow for uncensorable payments and it can allow for difficult to confiscate savings. Um, and so I, I do think that that's one of the technologies that can, you know, demonetize. We, we've monetized all these assets like homes. Ideally, you want to demonetize these productive things and have actual money be monetized, right? Instead of bad money and then monetize everything else, you demonetize those things and have your actual money stored in money. Um, and so I, I do think that's that's one of the most powerful tools that that people have. I, I also view it, you know, so I'm more mixed about how it's going to affect wealth concentration, but I think it's more about pushing back on kind of these, you know, surveillance type of states, right? So I think that's that's the clearest thing where I think Bitcoin is the answer. Um, when you have kind of this rise of authoritarianism, you have a rise of techno-authoritarianism, which in many ways is like the most frightening kind. You know, imagine if if, you know, all those infamous... 20th century authoritarians had access to CBDCs and, you know, big data and things like that, right? So I think we're going into this, you know, we already have it in China. Uh, we're seeing it pop up in other countries and self-custody money, primarily Bitcoin, is I think one of the few tools that allows that future to not go in that direction. <sighs> Fingers crossed then. Okay. Wow. Um, as ever, I've learned an amazing amount of very short amount of time for you, Linda. You you do know everything. Uh, I also got an email this week from somebody saying I signed up to Lynn Alden's in, uh, criminally cheap newsletter, which I keep telling you. So uh, everyone listening, go and sign up to Lynn's newsletter. Uh, Lynn, always great to talk to you. Fantastic subject. And uh, the detail you gave here is amazing. Going to see you in Miami very soon, about six weeks. So uh, yep. looking forward to that. And uh, yeah, let's see you next month. And appreciate as ever you coming on and helping us all learn a little bit more. Happy to be here. Thanks. All right. Thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. If you want to get in touch, the best thing you can do is head over to my Telegram channel or you can hit me up on my email, which is hello at whatbitcoindid.com.